you're about to hear from the state of Georgia's top law enforcement official. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. Welcome back to the Chuck Williams Show. This episode, we've got a guest out of Atlanta. Um, Chris Carr, Attorney General of the state of Georgia, is in Columbus this week. And we're going to sit down with Chris for about 45 minutes and talk about a lot of different stuff. Chris, welcome. Chuck, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, you, got, you got out of Atlanta for a few hours. Uh, attorney General. I mean, when people think Attorney General, it's... They think, okay, here's the guy who's in charge of all the state's law, legal issues. But you've been in the job now for almost four years. or what, Actually, six. Six, because yeah, six, six, you appointed and then ran. That's Absolutely. Right. In actuality, what is the attorney general now that you've had six years of doing the job? How would you define it now to somebody who walked in and said, hey, you're the attorney general. Here's what the attorney general does. Yep. So we're the lawyers for the executive branch of state government. But we work closely with the legislature, with the judiciary, and with state and local governments and, and elected officials. Because we have a little bit to do with everything, when you think about it. All the agencies, the boards, and the authorities that comprise state government, we're the lawyers for. We get involved in the legislative process, as we have, which I know we'll talk about, the gang prosecutions unit and the human trafficking unit that we got a, a couple of years ago. And then we represent judges when they get sued in their official capacity. And, and as we've, you know, we've, we've got a prosecutions division that obviously had a case down here involving the former DA. And we've got folks that, uh, you know, represent boards and authorities and that type of thing. So, you know, we, we've got a little bit of everything when it comes to the practice of law in the state of Georgia as it relates to state government. And you're hired by the people. We are hired by the people. And one of the things that's interesting is, uh, Chuck, we've got about 150 lawyers in-house. We've got about 150 professionals that are auditors and investigators, policy people, communications people. But we also hire two to 300 private practitioners around the state, particularly if it has to do with, say, child support or DFACS, uh, Department of Transportation, the water wars when there's a specialty. Um so we're about a, a four or five hundred person law firm, just depending on any given day. And what I like to tell folks is, you know, Texas is a little bit bigger than we are. Each state, through their constitution, crafts the AG's office differently. Uh, but they've got about three thousand lawyers and about twelve hundred support staff. So I tell everybody, taxpayers of Georgia, you get a bang for your buck out of our little law firm, and we're responsible for about twenty two or twenty three thousand cases on any given day. That's what our office is managing. That is an incredible caseload. It is a law firm. I mean, at the end of the day, it is, you know, I mean, I tell people the district attorney's office in Columbus is the second largest law firm in the city of Columbus. That's right. And so you've got to look at these public entities as essentially law firms. I want to get to the Columbus case, your office prosecuted and convicted Muskogee County district attorney, Mark Jones late last year. It was very quick. He was he took office in January. He was indicted in September on public corruption. He was convicted in by mid November. That's quick, isn't it? I mean, in the way Georgia's legal process works, that's a that that's pretty fast. Well, it did. It moved. It moved quickly in part because of that you know, as I recall too, his his attorneys were trying to move this along. We were fine to move it along. We had the facts and we had the evidence. But you know that that's important for the fair application and the efficiency of the law. 
it's only fair to the constitu to the residents of this city in the in, of Columbus and Muskogee County and his uh, circuit to, to to know for sure what happened. And so, uh, I, I John Fowler's the head of our prosecutions division. He did a great job put together the uh, the case with our team and the GBI and some others. Uh, but I think efficiency was key. It was important. When you've got an elected official that has been uh, charged with and accused of these crimes, and Mark, it's only fair to him, and it's only fair to the to the uh, taxpayers of Georgia and the those that are in this circuit to know what's going on. He was accused of offering bounties to prosecutors for murder convictions. Right. He was accused. There was video evidence of him talking to a Muskogee County or to a Columbus police officer, um, he was, I think Fowler described it as he was tipsy on alcohol and drunk on power was the way, what he told the jury. And Mark was asking the officer to lie under oath to basically upgrade a homicide conviction against an African-American, a homicide charge to a murder charge, the more serious charge. I mean, that's a serious crime. It is, and then and the jury found it as such, and, and, and we are where we are, and he got convicted. And, Chug, again, this is an issue of public corruption that we that we handled, and, and our office is not going to hesitate when the facts come to us to, to look into it, and not just the situation with Mark, but we've had a, uh, two other DAs that we've had to, to uh, prosecute. Uh, over the past couple of years, and and there are great district attorneys in this state that do their job. They get up every day and they enforce the law and they do it fairly and they do it ethically. But when you don't, I mean, this is a situation where somebody's freedom could be at stake, or it could be their life, depending on you know there there is the death penalty in this in this case. You need to know that those that are prosecuting the law are doing it the right way. And, and, again, we're, we're not going to hesitate to come in. And that is a place where, where at times, again, when issues of, of public corruption are occurring, particularly at the local level, it can get difficult when you've got, you know, prosecutors or county commissioners or whatever it may be. And so I think the state coming in and with the GBI investigating, I think that's a, an appropriate role for the state to play so that folks know everybody's getting a fair shake. I spent a good bit of time in the courtroom watching Jones prosecute cases in, during his time, and there were things that were just inexplicable, and I'll give you one example. And this was, I think, when everybody realized he was in front of – it was a murder It was a murder case. A uh, guy was accused of shooting uh, another a guy at a house party, just boom, gun, I mean, shoots him, uh, facing murder conviction. Jury had been out 20 hours, and Judge Ron Mullins, I believe, was the judge. Ron, uh, Mullins was letting it go. And then they get into court the next morning and find out that, and, and Jones was a creation of social media in a lot of ways. They found out that he had posted overnight on the victim's sister's Facebook page, this would be over now if I could just tell the jury about the defendant's criminal history. Judge went nuts. I mean, as nuts as pretty conservative, laid-back judge can go. And the question to the DA was, what, you gave, what do you think gave you the right to make that Facebook post? And Mark said, the First Amendment. And there was this dead silence in the room. 
And the judge looked. And before the judge could say anything, Mark said, turn around in an open court, said, well, Chuck Williams can walk out of here and post anything he wants on Facebook. Why can't I? And it was at that point that it became obvious he didn't understand what his job was. And, I mean. Well, and I, and I had heard uh, an anecdote about that. I can't really speak to that one because I don't know. I just know the case that we had. And, 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 and again, nobody is above the law, not not even a, a district attorney. And, and again, you, you hate when you get to the situation where somebody has to be prosecuted for public corruption or you know, these particular you know, cases that, that we had and uh, um, uh, a violation of oath of office and that type of thing. But you got to know that somebody's willing to do it because you hear about this all the time. P- people just throw up their hands and say, well, I don't know who to go to. Well, we in elective office, we uh, are expected to – meet the minimum, but in, in, we really should be going beyond that. And particularly, you got a situation, again, where somebody's freedom and, and liberty and, the, uh, and the, the rule of law are in place. It's, you just got to know somebody's willing to do it, and we're willing to do it. We're not targeting district attorneys, but we're not afraid to uh, prosecute if that's what the law and the facts require us to do. I want to talk about another aspect of your office right now, gang task force, gang yeah. work. I mean, you have done a lot of work on – on gangs, creating task force in ways. We have a gang problem in Columbus. There's no question. Just watch the arrest. You can see there's a gang problem in this community. But we're not alone in the state You're of not. You're not alone. And, you know, when you look, not to interrupt, but when you, in, in 2018, the Georgia gang investigators did a survey of the state, asked every county, do you see evidence of gang activity? 157 of Georgia's 159 counties reported yes. So you know what that tells me, Chuck? Two counties lied. There are gangs in every community in Georgia. But what the people of this state want to know is there's a plan and the cavalry's coming. And that's why I was so proud that this week the legislature passed our first of its kind historic uh, gang prosecutions unit for the state. And we'll be working hand-in-hand with federal, state, and local law enforcement, federal, state, and local prosecutors to tackle the issue of violent crimes and gang activity. Because we know, if you, depending on you talk to the FBI or the GBI, 60 to 90% of all violent crime is gang-affiliated. And every single Georgian deserves to feel safe. And in fact, Article 1, Section 1, Paragraph 2 of the Georgia Constitution says, it is the paramount duty of government to protect person and property. The paramount duty. So all of us coming together, this shouldn't be a political issue. It shouldn't be a partisan issue. It is literally an issue of duty to state. And I am so proud that we... Uh, got this legislation passed, and the, we've worked with the governor on it. He's put uh, 12 uh, positions for us in the budget, and so we'll be ready to go July 1 when this when the governor signs it, and, and we'll be hitting the ground running. Gains are intensely local, but they also have a structure that goes outside of this community sure. in some ways. I mean, so are y'all going to be looking more at the statewide network of gangs, or will you come into Columbus and go after the Bohannon guys. What I want to make sure that we're doing is in partnership, like we've done it with human trafficking. Okay, and, there, and, and I think there's three different areas where we can make a difference. One is the gangs that are operating in, across multiple county lines or multiple jurisdictions, because gangs really don't care what the city line or the county line is, but we've got 50 judicial circuits in this state. So you could have a gang that's operating up from Columbus up to 85, you know, to or Atlanta. across the river across, in Alabama. Or across the river to Alabama, which is, would be another way that you can work together with our partners over there. 
But it just makes more sense rather than having three, four, or five different DAs that could have a piece of it. That would be a good time for the state to be able to come in and play quarterback like we've done on human trafficking. But it takes partnership and communication. Second area is we've got gangs operating, unfortunately, in corrections and juvenile justice. And we've got the folks over there and both of those agencies that are working very hard to eradicate gang crime. But a lot of the institutions that we have that are corrections are in smaller judicial circuits where it's not a lack of desire to prosecute gang activity in the, in the, in the facility, in the, in the uh, prison, but it may be resources because they got to focus on crime on the outside, not on the inside. Well, we can come in and work with corrections and DJJ. And the other thing, Chug, is there is a push nationally among some in the, in the prosecution's world to, to just not enforce certain laws. And some jurisdictions have different interests and different uh, prioritization as it relates to gangs and otherwise. Well, that's where I think we can come in. You know, I, I've said this before. There's a DA in Athens that wrote a memo when she got elected in 2020 and she got in office in 2021. She listed the categories of crimes she wouldn't prosecute. Well, again, every Georgian deserves to feel safe. And if somebody's not going to be prosecuting certain crimes and it involves a gang, now the state can come in and make sure that we can help. We are going to be a force multiplier. We are going to work with federal, state, and local law enforcement but where you've got a jurisdiction that's working on it and it's working well, great. We'll always be happy to partner. But if there's an area where somebody may be not doing it for any number of reasons, at least the citizens of that uh, jurisdiction will know the state has an interest in doing it. And one of the things you see with gang prosecution, particularly when it comes to drug and gun charges, is the federal sentencing is much stricter and you you're going to serve the time so you see some of those charges maybe sliding into the fe- into federal court here um so we particularly all, with gun possession gun, firearm possessions absolutely gun charges that's right and where you've got that that's where that it's critical you have a good relationship with your federal prosecutors and federal law enforcement and I tell you, you know, when I was working with uh, Charlie Peeler, who used to be the, the U.S. attorney here, and, and Peter's done a great job, but Charlie and I were law school classmates, and then you had Bobby Christine in the Southern District and B.J. Pack in the Northern District. Those three U.S. attorneys in our office and GBI had a great relationship. And being able to communicate and not worry about whose turf it is, but rather communicating on what the best prosecution outcome would be is critically important, and we're going to continue to do that. I uh, want to switch gears real quickly. Um, a few months ago, Georgia lost a legend, Johnny Isaacson. I know that Senator Isaacson was incredibly in, impactful on your life. How how did working with Senator Isaacson and just kind of getting to know him and watch him. I mean, I think I just read the book Flip by Greg Bluestein, and I think he called you one of Isaacson's acolytes. That's one of the kindest things anybody could say. You know, Tell me about the Johnny. He, the Johnny, I knew, well, he's the same, he was the same guy in private that everybody saw in public because he was just the same guy. He was just Johnny. He wanted people to call him Johnny, whether he was the senator or the businessman. I learned more about politics, business, and life from Johnny Isaacson. Um, he, he was just—he was a great man and a statesman. And he—I've uh, always said he and Governor Deal were the two most successful politicians who hated the politics of politics. They wanted to roll up their sleeves. They wanted to fix problems. They wanted to solve the policy issue. They—they they wanted to be constructive and not destructive. And I think that that's so important in politics. 
But I'll tell you, some of my greatest memories will be, you know, whether it's walking the halls of the Russell building with Senator Isaacson or sitting with him at the end of the day, talking about what happened on the floor of the Senate or just getting in the car and driving through Georgia. I was his campaign manager in 03 and 04, and he and I knew each other a little bit, but we didn't know each other all that well. But that's how we got to know each other and to be able to ask him questions about his 90 governor's race or when I was with him in 96 when he ran for the Senate or time in business. It was invaluable, and it's missed. I mean, he and he was not just a mentor, a friend, and, and um, I would pick up the phone and call him and ask him questions, and that's something that's that's certainly missing. But there is not a day that goes by that I don't talk about Johnny or what would Johnny do. I talk about it with the staff. I know they probably get tired of it, but I tell you, he, he literally is one of Georgia's greatest uh, elected officials, and, uh, you know, he and, and you know, Governor – uh, deal and uh, Zell Miller and you know Saxby Chambliss and we you know we had a great run there of of great elected leaders that our state has seen some of its greatest success under and you, I'm proud to be a part of it. You can learn a lot about somebody when you turn off 16 and head down toward Jessup and into <laughs> South Georgia on those lo- those trucks where you're dodging log tr- those roads where you're dodging log trucks and just and stopping in a restaurant where Johnny knew the the owner or the barber in a particular town or somebody that he knew because of his grandparents or, you know, it's it, it, that, that again, uh, politics, according to Johnny Isaacson is, was, and always will be a people business. People want to look you in the eye and shake your hand. And I agree with that. doesn't matter how much social media or television there is. That's what politics is really about. He was kind of a reluctant elected official in many ways from people I've talked to. He didn't particularly like the election cycle of it. I think, do you, I mean, you're on the ballot, you're facing Republican opposition, you certainly are going to, if you get out of the primary, which you should, um, you're going to face some Democratic opposition with a, with a lot of intention, attention on this, on this cycle. Um, do you like the campaigning part of it? I do. I love it. I, I, you get energized. I, I was an I was an athlete as a kid, and so it's kind of that same adrenaline rush when you're getting out there and you have to go find that next voter and get you know organize a county or you know get out the vote, whatever it may be. To me, that that is as I get a rush from that. I love people. In fact, I'm very hard to leave a room. You can ask my wife or the staff. It's up to them. I would say my job is to do the job in politics and y'all's jobs to keep me on time. Uh, but I do like you, but, but again, I, I think that that is the real element of politics. People need to get to know who you are. They need to hear from you. And to me, the best situation truly is sitting around that table for breakfast or lunch or dinner with five to 10 people where it's not rushed and they can ask you what you think about things. And I, and I love doing it. You used a phrase a minute ago and I, I love it. I think I'll, to probably start using it some now politics of politics yeah which brings us to former president trump um i think that's a as good a segue as i'm gonna get into it um you in your role as attorney general were pulled pulled into the uh into the georgia election 2020 mess lack of a better word how did it feel to know that you had become a target? I mean, you certainly weren't on the Kemp 
level, but you and Lieutenant Governor Duncan were certainly targets, and Raffensperger, obviously. Kemp Raffensperger, and then you were kind of on the B team of the targets. But you were clearly getting targeted by President Trump in tweets and in comments as he tried to overturn the vote. How did that feel to be personally? And you had a, you had a, what, a 15, 20-minute conversation with him while you were trying mm-hmm. to watch the movie Elf with your family? That, that's exactly I did. Chuck, I did the job that I was elected to do, and I've told people this before. I'm a Republican. Politically, did I want my team to lose? Absolutely not. I didn't want two senators to lose. I didn't want the state to go to the Democratic candidate, not in any way, shape, or form. I, I tell people all the time, I've been working for the party for 30 years, and you know, in 1992, Al Gore came to the University of Georgia when I was a junior, and I was one of six people holding up George Bush signs in a sea of of Democratic supporters. I worked for Johnny in 96. I, I, you know, I love my party. I love being a Republican. I love what it stands for. I just, I didn't want us to lose, but it didn't happen the way that people said that it happened. And so what I have said, Chuck, is I've just taken an anti misinformation position, whether it's from the right or from the left. And yes, our, my team said we lost because of widespread voter fraud. And and Chuck, there just is no evidence of widespread voter fraud such that it would overturn the election. And what I tell people all the time is, if there was, why wouldn't I have brought a lawsuit? I'd be a conservative hero nationally. I'd have been on television shows and Fox News every night. Sean Hannity would have been interviewing you all the time? Every night. But it just didn't happen that way. But I also remind people. But how do you tell people that don't want to hear that or simply won't listen to it? How do you tell them you had the you had the information at your fingerprint at your fingertips because of your job? How do you get people that are not going to believe that to believe it? Well, and we, and we did. We went to court sixteen times between November the third and January fifth. We went before Trump judges and. Obama judges and federal judges and state court judges, and 16 times we prevail based on the fact and the law. Again, politically, I didn't want the team, my team to lose, but those are the facts, and that's what we did. I can't control how somebody else feels or what they're going to think. I can just control what I do, and that is based on the fact. I can continue to tell people what we did, what we didn't do, what we could do, what we couldn't do. But at the end of the day, most people, when I tell them the facts, they may still be unhappy with the outcome, but they appreciate knowing. And most of the time they said, oh, I didn't know that that happened. So I actually have pretty good success of talking with people about the facts uh, and, and what happens. But I, I certainly can't control that. I can just do the job I'm elected to do. I'm proud of the job I did. Again, politically didn't want the team to lose, but this is what I was elected to do as the attorney general, which is uphold the rule of law. You now have Trump-backed Senator David Perdue, and I know you know Senator Perdue well, I mean, and challenging Governor Kemp. What is the potential down-ballot fallout of of that top race now being in essentially family feud times 10? Well, it could have an impact. It could have a trickle-down effect on, on Republicans. And look, I, I think if you look at the national environment – you look at where, you know, inflation is 7.9% nationally. It's 10.6% in Atlanta. You see crime going up in major uh, cities around the country. You look at what's going on on the border or, or overseas. You look at the environment that we're in. But you also look, Chuck, we have a good story to tell in the state of Georgia. The last few years have been tough for everybody. 
But here in the state, we as elected officials at the state level and the governor, myself, the Speaker of the House, the legislature, we tried to do two things. We tried to keep people healthy and we tried to keep the economy open because we recognized if anybody got sick during COVID, that could be tragic. But we also recognized if you lose your job or the business that you built throughout your entire career or your life savings, that too could be tragic. We've got a great story of leadership in this state that we should tell. I was commissioner of economic development from 2013 to 2016. We've had more economic development projects during COVID because of the conservative leadership that we've had in this state and the way that we've approached it. We've got a good story to tell. But you've got the top one, which is Rivian, and Senator Perdue's challenging that. It, it's it's very confusing to me because this is potentially this is going to change three thousand families forever. This is a job that is going to be given. And it's going to transform lives and 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 communities. I, so I don't understand that. West Point, but Georgia, for certainly he is a great. I mean, look at that three thousand folks on the on the site itself. Fourteen thousand jobs in the region, and and I believe in the power of the free enterprise system. I've seen the transformative nature. So again, yes, we do have this this uh, this primary season. It can be very um, it can be divisive. But at the end of the day, you know, we lost the 2020 election because college educated men and women didn't like the message in the messenger. And then between November and January, Republicans said you can't trust the election. Don't don't go out and vote. And people took us up on it. We've got to be able to go back out there, explain to college-educated men and women who are coming back because they don't like inflation. They don't want to see $6 gallon of gas here this summer that we potentially could have. They don't like crime in their neighborhoods. They have come back to us. We've got to be able to convince them. We've got to be able to convince those that don't trust the election. And, look, I'm defending SB202 because I believe it honestly provides more security, transparency, and access to our elections. Remember, Republicans complained in 2020, but Democrats complained in 2018. I go back to my misinformation. Stacey Abrams said she lost the election because of voter suppression. There is not one Georgian who was registered to vote and eligible to vote in 2018 that was prohibited from voting. Stacey got more votes for governor than any candidate in Georgia history except one guy named Brian Kemp. And then she filed a federal lawsuit where the judge threw out 18 of her those 20 claims in this landmark case she was going to bring it just didn't happen so we've got to be but but uh, there is a you're saying both sides have a narrative they have and there but there is a crisis of confidence in elections which 202 in my mind has strengthened the security access and the transparency we've got to be able to convince people you, you can trust the elections we've done things that we need to do we need to be able to as republicans convince those to come back out and whoever loses the governor's race um, you know, and I think Brian Kemp's going to win. I, I think Brian Kemp should be praised. He shouldn't have been primaried. And so when we're done with this primary season, we've got to all come back together because there is a distinction and a difference between the Republican and Democratic parties. When I ran Johnny's t- 2004 race, I heard from more people, Chris, there's not a dime's worth of difference between Republicans and Democrats. That may have been true then. It is not true now. And so there is a a, a true difference of opinion and leadership in this state. And, and Kemp put his head down every day during this pandemic, and he has done his job. We've tried to do the exact same thing. He and I are working together on on fighting crime, and, and we've got a good story to tell, and I think we're going to be successful in November. When you talk about crisis of confidence in the system, and a lot of it, particularly on the right side, is coming from 
this false narrative that there was a steal in Georgia. You know, it's not all of it, but it's certainly a big chunk of it. Does that worry you a little bit? Well, there's two narratives. Remember, the 2020 narrative and the 2018. Okay. Both of which are undermining the brand that is our state. It is damaging to our state when people believe either that there was voter fraud or voter suppression. Again, I go back to the facts and the evidence. There was no evidence of widespread voter fraud in 20, and there was no voter suppression in 2018. But people are damaging the brand of our state. That is not what leaders should do. What we should be doing is if we have a problem, we fix it. But it needs to be based on fact, and it needs to be based on evidence. And again, if you look over the last four years and what we have done in this state to keep people healthy, to keep the economy going, to protect our citizens and protect liberty, that is a great story that is to be told, and I'm going to continue to tell it too. And that's what we got to focus on, being accurate and the facts and the evidence. One of the institutions that took a lick, um, a big lick during the COVID crisis, has been the court system. I mean, we have a justice denied, justice delayed narrative going on a little bit, but you've got murder cases and armed robbery and ag assault and sexual sexual assaults, rapes and child molestation cases that have all been backlogged because of the inability to really move jury trials. And then in Muskogee County, it's been compounded by the fact that we had a corrupt DA, now we've got an acting DA, and we're still waiting on Governor Kemp to make the appointment down here. We're hearing that they did interviews, it's getting close. But how does the system crank back up after grind the legal system the court system crank back up after grinding to a halt well this was because this was unique i mean this is a once in not a generation but once in a hundred year pandemic that that we were all trying to figure out what we did and so again everybody tried to do what they could do the best of their ability and, and that's the same thing with the court system i think there's a partnership between the state and local communities where each each district, each judicial circuit may have unique set of circumstances that need to be addressed. And the governor tried to release some emergency funds to help either add we got space. Two million yeah. here. So, so, again, that's how you do it. But it is going to take time. And you are right. I mean, again, the, there's no asterisk in the Constitution and, and you know, as it relates to, to jury trials. And, and we want to make sure that, that justice is done efficiently. Civil trials are pushed way out because you got to deal with the criminal trials uh, on the criminal calendar because of, because of all of these People that are well. locked up take precedent, right? It, well, just because it's a liberty issue, right? Yep. I mean, there's a constitutional issue that's there. But, again, same on the civil side. People are waiting to, to have their the resolution to their whatever the, the conflict may be, and that's how we, the people, have said we're going to do it. So it is going to be a process. But I do think, and I commend the, the state, and I commend the governor for, for working with communities to try to figure out what resources are needed, whether it's in facilities, whether it's in – more lawyers, where it's more clerks and, and staff attorneys, whatever it may be. But we just got to keep trying to work at it together, and, and each community is going to see it a little bit differently too. And we're kind of getting a taste of it right now. Judge David Emerson out of uh, Douglas, Georgia, is down here doing yeah. our first multi-defendant uh, murder trial since COVID. We've got four co-defendants on trial um, in a 2018 murder in the Pizza Hut parking lot, and you're kind of getting a feel for this. I mean, this is, you know, we got 120 people in Muskogee County Jail waiting murder trials. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. And, you know, so you're looking at th- that, and 
they're able to do it. I mean, they've got co-defendants. It's you know, you got eight eight people at the table. You got lawyers. It's a crowded courtroom. It feels like pre-COVID sort of kind. And I mean, you're going to have to go to school on these types of trials that are happening now to figure out how to do it safely, right? Well, and and there's also some things we did during COVID with uh, you know hearings that were on Zoom. Maybe that helps the efficiency as well. And, you know, again, it's going to – there's some things I think you can do on Zoom and some things you can't. I've been asking some judges about that too and what yeah. they're comfortable with. But, again, I, I think we, we've got to be diligent. We've got to be patient, but we've got to keep moving forward. And the other thing is you've got to be careful going forward. I think we've learned – we didn't know in March of 2020, you know, kind of what we know in March now of 2022 and what we can and don't have to do. But we got to all keep moving forward. Yeah, and I think it's going to take judges, it's going to take DAs, it's going to take Private crim- practitioners, criminal and, defense yeah. attorneys. I mean, all these people are going to have to work the system. You know, I mean, I wouldn't have said this 12 months ago, but I'll say it now after watching the crisis that happened in our district attorney's office in 2021. The DA's job may very well be the most important job in the county, mm-hmm. more so than the mayor more so than the seven superior court judges. There's only one DA, and if that goes sideways, a lot of things go sideways with it. I think people, I heard an attorney here the other day say, it's really important the governor gets this appointment right because coming out of it, there is a lack of confidence in our system. You know, and during the jury voir dire for this trial that I was in, uh, one potential juror essentially got dismissed because said he couldn't be fair. Why can't you be fair? I don't trust what the system did to Mark Jones. You know, it was like I'm going to side with the defense guys. And, you know, and it was really interesting to hear a prospective juror say that during questioning. It was like, whoa, that I hadn't thought of it that way. So this is an important decision Governor Kemp's facing on our new DA, right? Oh, it is, and I have confidence in the governor. I think that the, the uh, appointments he's made to the bench and where he's had to appoint other district attorneys and Houston County's one, and you know there are the uh, has been very good rave reviews, and he takes this very seriously. He's got great people around him that understand the system, that understand the process, and understand the importance of the rule of law. Are you when you lay in bed at night? What's the one thing about your job that keeps you up? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I, I'm six years into it now, and I, I feel that, um, you know, I've grown into the job, and, and, and I know I know what I know and I know what I don't know, and I know that we've got great people around us. I think, you know, in, in any elective office, particularly post-COVID, you don't know what's going to come tomorrow. It's the, <laughs> un- the known unknowns, as Don Rumsfeld maybe once have said. But I tell you, the thing that's come out of it, of COVID, is we now know that we can handle some real, we, society, not just me or our office, but uh, we can handle crises. And whatever's going to come next, we've got the team and the system to put that back together. But you just don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. I mean, when you look, the last 12 months, there's been a global health pandemic, economic crisis, social justice unrest, and, and a historically contested election. Take any one of those by themselves and that would have been a, a crisis, but take all four. But, look, you kind of get up every day and put your head down. And, and so when you are in elective office, I, I think the thing really is, okay, well, what's next? You named all of the 
things that have happened the last 12 months. Georgia was at the center of a whole lot of that, wasn't it? We were. We were. <laughs> For good and bad. Mostly but, bad. But again, I, I'm again I will argue and I will I'm very passionate about this. I am thankful to have been with a group of folks like the, again the governor and the speaker and others who who focused on keeping people healthy, keeping the economy open, protecting liberty. You know, we had a, a lawsuit against the uh, Biden uh, vaccine mandate, not because I'm opposed to vaccines. Actually, I'm for, I've been vaccinated three times and families vaccinated. But the question is, did the president have the authority to do this? Did he, could he tell federal contractors or companies over a hundred or healthcare workers or daycare centers? And we, we got an injunction in the federal contractor case. We brought it in the Southern district of Georgia. And I, I bring that up because the judge in that case hit the nail on the head. The judge said, the pandemic has been tragic, but even during a pandemic, the rule of law matters. It must be upheld. There is no asterisk in the Constitution for a global health pandemic. You still have to follow the law. If the law needs to be changed, if the Constitution needs to be amended, there are ways to do that. But until you do it, you've got to follow the law. And that's the thing I think. Yeah, we have been in the center of the storm. But I'll, we are not California or Oregon or New York or New Jersey or Illinois. Or Texas. For, for a reason. And it's the leadership that we – and I'm proud to have stood up. I've been – I'm, you know, has every day been easy? Nope, but it hasn't been easy for you or anybody else in Georgia or around the country. But I'm proud to have stood up and did, have tried, been a part of a team to provide leadership in this state. And uh, we've got a good story to tell. When the Attorney General of Texas tried to step into the Georgia election recount and all of that, your office basically said, no, you can't do that. Immediately said it was constitutionally, factually, and and legally uh, untrue and inaccurate. And the Supreme Court proved us right. You know, I've often wondered what it's like to be in a job where you have a Supreme Court that will tell you if you're right or wrong. I mean, literally, I mean, you have appellate court, Supreme Court, state Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court. It's, I mean, there's a lot of checks and balances in the system, isn't it? There are, th- thank heaven. But, again, when you get a, a – when you're at the Georgia Supreme Court or Court of Appeals or 11th Circuit or a trial court or at the U.S. Supreme Court and, and you prevail – that's a testament to the folks that we have in that department that are great lawyers that uh, uh, love serving the people of this state. Um, they do it for again for the for the love of public service, and we have a great department of law in this state who believes in upholding the rule of law, the principles of federalism, and and I think that that's in a very important. Factor again. There's a lot of reasons we're the number one state in the nation for business, Chuck. I mean, you can talk about great universities like Columbus State. You got Technical College. You got the logistics network. You got the ports. But it's also a legal, a predictable legal and regulatory environment, and we don't see business as the enemy. We you that's know, part of where your office comes into play. It is again. It's our job to uphold the law. The law needs to change. That's somebody else's job. But, but we see, again, the transformative nature of the free enterprise system. We see how uh, families and communities can be transformed, and we want to be a part of growth. We also want to be a part of upholding law. That's our job. But you've got some states that see business as the enemy. We don't. We don't. And, I mean, again, look at the, the value of a Kia. 
Look at what, what that company I mean, you has can, done for this entire region. You it's can go back and look at Kia, and I covered it from 2003 on up. And, you know, R- Rivian, I'm pronouncing it right. Rivian. Rivian. Yep. Rivian, by the time Kia was announced, everything was done. All the real estate deals were done. You know, you had Drew Ferguson's father, who was a banker there, who sat down at the kitchen table with people you know, making the deals and making the case before it ever really became fully public. Everybody knew what was going on, but it was being done in a very different way. I mean, I don't think anybody would point to Kia now and say that was a mistake, at least in at least from Auburn, Opelika, Alabama to Newnan and from Columbus to, uh, to LaGrange. I mean, if you take that. Look at how many Georgians have been hired. Look at how it has changed their lives. I mean, it's not just the the plant itself, which is unbelievable, but the suppliers. Look at all the suppliers that we have. Like I said, 3,000 on the ground at at one point, 14,000 when you talk about all the different suppliers around the region. I've never – I have not heard anybody say a bad word about Kia since I've been commissioner or attorney general because it's just – it's been such a transformative project for us. Um, we're getting toward the end of this, and I'm going to do something with you that I've done with all of my podcast guests. I call it Turn the Table. I've been a- asking you a question. I mean, with your job, you don't get to ask reporters questions very often. You get to kind of throw one at me. And I, I purposely didn't tell you to start with because I, w- I wanted to see what came off the top of your head. Sure. Well, so I know you, you, you were a child prodigy when you started as a, uh, as a journalist. What have you seen that's different in reporting on politics over the course of your career? You know, it's funny. You were talking about competitive juices and politics. I mean, I'm a sports guy. I started as a sports guy. I'll always be a sports guy. I was a sports editor, uh, um, was a sports columnist, sports writer. Um, And politics is a game. It's just like sports. I think sports is a better training for covering politics. You got winners and you got losers. You know, I covered NASCAR for a while in – in for the Aniston Star, so we were attached to Talladega. We went over to Hampton, we went down to Daytona, and went up to Bristol. So we covered those four tracks. But I learned in NASCAR, and I was covering it when Tim Richmond contracted AIDS and and died. Was a very flamboyant driver. I covered Earnhardt. I covered Daryl Waltrip. I mean, I was in a golf cart at Alpine Bay Golf Course on a media scramble when Walter was the driver and we were going down a hill and all of a sudden the brakes on the golf cart gave way and I I'm glad he was driving and not me and <laughs> looked up and he goes I've done this before and I'm like great um but it's about personality I say that it's politics is about personality too and that's one of the things that Bluestein's book really really pounded home to me in re in listening to flip over the last two days whether it's Stacey Abrams or Brian Kemp, whether it's you or, you know, Senator Perdue, Leffler, Isaacson, I mean, Warnock, Ossoff, all the people that kind of came out in that narrative of what happened that all of us saw but didn't know some of the backstories, it's personality-driven. And, you know, if you can relate to people and tell people's stories 
it it enables you to cover politics, but it's it's a game. It is it's at the end of the day, it's a game with real consequences. I mean, you saw it when Mark Jones was elected DA in Muskogee County. He basically outworked the sitting DA. He built a social media network and he rode a wave of free the green anti-establishment politics into the district attorney's office. But the problem was when he got there, he didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to do it. And he didn't know the ethical boundaries of what you could and couldn't do. And your office called him on that. So I, I don't know if I answered your question, but it's best. No, it's great. No, it's great. And, and and knowing the, I think the sports analogy again is is spot on. And it's there is a competition, you know. Every two years or in an off year for municipal election, it's a competition. And um, and I think it's fast. No, that's interesting. I didn't know that background on you. Yeah, and it's fascinating too when you look at it. You can look at somebody and tell with as an athlete that they're better than somebody. It didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out Bo Jackson and Herschel Walker were better than everybody else on those football fields. It just, I mean, anybody could figure that out. And politicians have a certain gravitas, too. And it's interesting, you know, to kind of watch that. You know, one of the last things I'll get at and then let you roll out of here. I know you got to go to CSU. But I learned a lot of politics watching uh, Pete Robinson operate over the last uh, – um, we became friends probably 15, 18 years ago and talked a lot um, on the phone. I could get advice and understand things, and you know, and he could understand the media side sometimes. I know you had a relationship with Pete as well. I mean, Pete was the best I'd ever seen at playing the game of politics, and I don't say that lightly. Oh, that's right. I got to know him when I first went to work for Isaacson. I knew who he was because I love politics and reading about it. But I got to know him when I went to work, work for Johnny. But then he and I, uh, he was the chair, co-chair of Governor Deal's Judicial Nomination Commission, which recommends to the governor uh, picks for uh, uh, judicial slots. So I got to actually work closely with him for eight years, and he and I got more you know, close over that time. And uh, his understanding of politics was so good. It was just deep. It, 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 again, it's that thing you can't teach. He just inherently knew it. But from time in the legislature, time in the private sector, time as a lawyer, um, Pete was great. And you could call him and have a confidential conversation. You could. He could. He would give you good advice. He wasn't mad if you didn't take the advice, uh, <laughs> which you shouldn't do very often anyway. But he, he was just. Pete was just a great guy and it was just it was a loss you know he passed those, away last summer yeah for those of us you know again that rely on mentors and and there is institutional knowledge in politics like everything else pete had the institutional knowledge you know and it was a loss on a state level but it was an incredible hole that yeah. was knocked into the community of columbus georgia because pete the mercer med school has pete's fingerprints all over it that's a huge deal I mean, you look back at Pete and Calvin Smyre and what they were able to accomplish working together, you know, um, through making projects in CSU. I mean, Columbus State University yeah. is what yeah. it is today because of the local philanthropic gifts to it, but also the state saying, okay, we got a school here that's worth investing in. That's right. And I think that's been very 
very, very wise at the end of the day. Well, he he was a champion. I got one more question for you, though, Chuck. Okay. Bo or Herschel? Oh, man. 34. <laughs> no, no, I, no, I'm, I'm, that was a great political answer. A great political answer. Bo Jack. I'm, I, I covered Bo as a young sports writer, and one of my first memories of him was um, – he was standing on the training table in the old locker room under the stadium. And it was a post game. They had just played Louisiana Lafayette or one of the various quadrants of the great state of Louisiana. And he had rushed for four miles and he was standing up there. And this was when his stuttering problem was still bad. And it was so painful to watch him try to answer questions and they really went to work. They got him the help he needed to be able to more comfortably communicate with the situation that this, you know, unbelievable athlete, but kid out of Leeds, I mean, not Leeds, but McAdory had been thrown into. Barkley's from Leeds. Barkley had no communication problems, <laughs> none whatsoever. Best communicator I've ever seen. Uh, but, uh, you know, that, you know, and you, you don't realize that what we what we saw as kids. I mean, or as young young professionals. I mean, you saw Herschel. I mean, and I'm sure you you're 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 a proud Georgia Bulldog, and I'm sure you're wearing your national championship T-shirts. Yeah, Chuck. Did you know we won the national champ? I just want to make sure you knew. A couple a couple months ago, we the Georgia Bulldogs won the national football championship it was great and you beat the evil empire so i'm fine with that i'm, I, I, I'm fine i, I, I try that. i try to slide it into most speeches it just sounds so good well um this is the part where i've got to drive us home dylan always watches as i crash the truck coming through the, coming around the last turn uh but you can listen to the chuck williams show on tuesday nights on wrbl.com it's available from seven to eight o'clock it's also available anytime after that you can get us on your normal podcast studios on iheart um audible spotify Spotify, iheart and audible right apple Apple. sorry sorry (laughs) see i told you car always hits that ball every time and then you know on social media you can get me on twitter i'm at chuck williams um twitter is an incredibly important venue right now for politics. There's a lot of political stuff that happens on Twitter. It's well, if you're not a Twitter person, but you're a political person, I would strongly suggest trying to get on Twitter and sort of follow some of the political stuff. And then um, Facebook, Chuck Williams WRBL, and Instagram, Chuck Williams 0999. You've been listening to another episode of the Chuck Williams Show. Our guest has been Chris Carr. He's running to keep his job as Attorney General of the State of Georgia, Republican. He is going to face primary and If he gets that far, he will face general election opposition. And we thank Chris for coming in and spending a few minutes with us. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me.